Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for this week's edition of All Things Evangelism. This is where we talk about all things that pertain to evangelism. I'm your host, the Evangelism Director of the North New South Wales Conference, and I'm here today with Christopher Peterson. He's a pastor in North New South Wales, and he's a young guy, but he lets no one despise his youth because he's a man who loves the Word of God and who spends a lot of time studying it. So today, welcome, Chris. Thank yeah, you. no, thanks for having me on today, Matt. Great pleasure to be here speaking with you. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming and taking your time. So we're talking today, everyone, about worldviews and how fundamentally, just on a fundamental level, there really is only two worldviews. And Chris is going to walk us through this a bit today. And before he does, Christopher, do you mind just giving a simple definition for the word worldview? Sure. So I guess a worldview really is encompassing all of those big questions that we have in life. It's talking about things like morality, how do we live our life, origins, how did we get here, death and afterlife, what happens when we're gone, the purpose and meaning of life, what do we do while we're here. So all of these big questions, really, when they come together, create a worldview, and everyone has a worldview. It's not a religious thing. People who have religious beliefs, people who are completely irreligious, equally have a worldview. So it's important to understand the different worldviews we're going to encounter to be effective evangelists. I don't know if this will come off right, but it's I've heard it said that your worldview is the or the lenses your worldview is the lens through which you see the world. Yeah, I'd say that's a really good summary. So I guess what you want to make sure then is you're wearing the right lenses. Yeah, um, that's right. There's like yeah, when I was just out of high school, there it was really popular to have these glasses that had different kind of shades or colors in them. And so whenever you would put them on, it'd make the world bright or dark or pink or purple or all kinds of crazy colors. And we still love to wear those glasses. And mm. so those glasses would be like worldviews. The lens you put on, and it's just how you see the world, the set of ideas, the set of beliefs that all combine together to give you a view of the world, the lens through which you define reality around you. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's all about your outlook on life. And I think that's why that metaphor of yeah, glasses or lenses is used a lot. So yeah, to be an effective evangelist, we need to be as aware of the different worldviews that there are around us. Now, the problem is there's something like 20, 30, 40,000 different religious belief systems and political philosophies out there. So it's actually impossible to know every single worldview. If you tried to dedicate all of your time to doing that, it'd be a big waste of your time and you wouldn't succeed. So really, wouldn't it be handy if there was only two that we had to memorize? If every single worldview could be categorized into just two camps, then you just have to memorize two things instead of 20,000. And how much better is your mission going to be to different people when you can just bring out these two worldviews and go, bam, I know exactly how to witness to this type of person. That's it. So why do you think it's important to understand the worldview that someone has when you're reaching out to them? When you're talking with someone else in a different worldview, it's surprising the amount of things that you may not have in common with that person. So the language you're using, the concepts and beliefs that you're invoking may mean absolutely nothing to the other person. For example, I had a friend who completely read the book of Genesis in a different light. He viewed God as like an evil character and the serpent as a good character. 
who brought knowledge to Adam and Eve, and this was a good thing for him. And so I kept trying to tell him that God is love, and he could not grasp that concept because his worldview was completely different. And I'll admit, after talking for about an hour, I'd made no, no further progress because the terms, definitions, the presuppositions that we brought both brought were completely different. We were looking at the exact same story in the Bible, and yet we couldn't agree. And that was because of my inability to be able to see from his perspective and try and get into his mind to explain it in a way that would communicate most effectively to him. So understanding someone's worldview would be the equivalent of knowing where you where someone was on a map so that you would be effective at giving them good directions, or at least trying to give them good directions. So you'd know, okay, this is where they're located on an intellectual level. This is where they're located on a philosophical level. And so since this is where they stand, just using the physical analogy, but this is where they are on the map, on the intellectual map, or on the belief system map, Okay, so therefore, this is the path that I would need to take them on, or this is the journey I would need to take them on to get them to the Jesus destination. Yeah, I, that is a, a perfect analogy. So I'm just going to let that sit because I've got nothing better to add. <laughs> cool. That's yeah. great. It just it, it seems like that's it. Hey, it's knowing where someone is, because how are you going to give someone directions if you don't know where they are? Yeah. Like, hey, how do I get right. to the Kmart? How do I get to Woolies? Where are you? From where? And so the question from where leads us to where are they? What worldview do they have they adopted that affects how they see the world around them? Yeah, exactly. So you're saying, you're contending that underneath all worldviews, there's just two primary views and that's it. Exactly. And this is really borrowed from the Apostle Paul. So Paul gives us this. He makes it so easy for us. I love that he's done this. And you, we find this categorization in Romans chapter one. Towards the kind of middle section of Romans, Paul's talking about how God has been revealed to all of humanity through nature. And he says, God has been shown to everyone since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes are seen in everything that we look at. And then he comes to verse 22 and he says, so all the world's looked at nature and it's seen evidence of God as the creator. And then in verse 22, he says, professing to become wise, they became fools and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So Paul says, look, these people look out at creation and rather than think there must be a God who created this that's beyond his creation, they instead decide to worship the very things in creation. And he says, that's foolish. Why would you worship something that's no more God than you are, like a, a tree or an animal. Like it's a part of the creation. How could it have been the creator God? And so he continues in verse 24, he says, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul, he says here, you've got two options. You either worship the creator, which he defines as the truth, or worship a lie, which is worshiping creation. And it is such a, an astute thing which Paul has said, because not only is Paul right at the time he's writing this, think about all the religious beliefs that have emerged in 2,000 years since he wrote it, and he's still dead on the money with this idea that you either worship the creator 
or worship the creation. And the terms that I like to use for this, they're borrowed, and I'll at the very end let people know where I've borrowed it from. The terms I use are oneism and twoism. So oneism is there's no distinction between the creation and the creator. Instead, everything is one, everything's together. Whereas twoism is about recognizing there's something different between me and God. God's a creator. I'm his creation. So there's two of us. There's the one. So those are the two main things. And maybe we'll go through some examples. But uh, yeah, maybe you've got some comments before we get. Yeah, no, that's so good. I love it. I love how you can draw that from that passage. And it's right. Paul distinguishes between those who worship the creature or the creation and those that worship the creator. It's right there. And I could see that does underlie like all worldviews. In whatever the worldview, if it's based on the idea that a part of the creation or creation itself should be worshipped or acknowledged as supreme, then that's one way of viewing the world that can be broken up into lots in an innumerable amount of ways, an infinite amount of ways you could break that up. But on the other hand, there's this idea that, no, 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 God is beyond. God is not bound. God is separate and distinct. And therefore, he really ultimately, therefore, he is worthy to be worshiped. That's one way of viewing reality. And man, that's cool. And it's amazing how in Romans 1, he intertwines this idea of idolatry and then the lusts of the flesh and how they combine. Like when people deify their own viewpoints, feelings, and perspectives, the natural consequence of that is, you know, immoral behavior, physically immoral behavior. Yes. Um, Because they're worshiping their fallen selves. Yeah. And in fact, that'll be one of the brief examples that we go through. I'll shoot through a few examples for you. And yeah, please comment along. So one of the main ones that we see is basically a lot of the Eastern religions all have very similar ideas. So this is Hinduism, Buddhism, and what has been imported from the East to now Western countries we call like New Age beliefs. And even at the time of the early church, they had Gnosticism. They all teach exactly the same thing, which is that the divine resides inside of you, uh, that within your physical body, there's this spark of divine. And the aim of these religious beliefs is to reconnect that divine spark in you with the divine spark in the universe, or in other words, to become one, the old joke, you become one with the universe, but that's what it is. And then there's lots of different practices to do that. Probably the most famous one uh, is the Hindus would do yoga and yoga is the word means to yoke. And the idea is you're trying to yoke yourself with the universe. You're trying to become one through one with the universe. And in a way it's, it's a very nihilistic worldview because basically it says all life is suffering the aim is to stop existing. So it's actually what I've come across as a term salvation by suicide. It's how can I stop existing in order to save myself? And you'll love this. There's a very large sect in Buddhism called Advaita Buddhism. And the word Advaita, this is so good. The word Advaita literally means not to, not to. <laughs> you know, how much better could you get? The idea is becoming one with the divine at removing that distinction between you and the divine. And so we've seen a big uptick in this in Western culture where people love this idea of adopting these Eastern religions that are focused on putting your own effort into reaching the divine. 
it's very fashionable and in vogue at the moment. And the, it, there's a similarity there between this view, this perspective and the Bible, right? Because, or the truth in Romans eight sixteen, it says that, that our, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And there in Luke, I think it's chapter 17 or 16, Jesus talks, no, it's in 17. And he says, don't say the kingdom of heaven is over there or over here for the kingdom of heaven is inside of you or it's among you, depending upon the translation that you use. Yeah. I think it's among you. And Jesus is saying, I'm the embodiment of the kingdom I think and I'm standing right in front of you right now. Yes. I don't think he's saying that inside of your heart and mind, there's the kingdom of heaven, but that's how Christians who have merged their thinking with Eastern thinking, interpret that passage. They say, oh yeah, the kingdom of God's in all of us. But yeah. to an extent, because the spirit works in our hearts and he is the emissary of the kingdom of heaven, he, the kingdom of heaven is in us, but mm. you can say that, but it means two totally yeah. different things. Well, yeah. that's what uh, Satan is really the master of, isn't it? Getting real close to the truth, close mm -hmm. enough to trick you, you know? Um, yeah, it's like the same language, but very different meaning. Yeah, it's just, it's deceptive. Yeah, but I wanted to say in regards to just the idea of merging yourself into nothing or just making yourself nothing so you can merge into the oneness, yeah. you lose your individual identity. You can see in a world of suffering why people might come to, to the conclusion that's a good idea because there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of pain, and a lot of that hurt and pain comes from other people. And so you've got humanity immersed in suffering and misery. And by and large, we're compounding that misery with bad choices and we're hurting each other. And so the person might look around themselves, the Eastern thinker might look around themselves and think, well, the way out is to, since evil comes from people, people need to become less of people. Right. Yeah. And, and also too, the ego doesn't want to confront the idea that there's something inherently wrong in our nature. Mm. And so we perpetrate evil. So it's a much more flattering notion to say we're, we're really originally part of the divine and we're separated from the divine. And if we could come together with the divine again and lessen ourselves and then all suffering would be dealt with. And, and that's another huge distinction between oneism and twoism or Christianity and these other worldviews. In oneism, usually the idea is salvation comes through remembrance. So the idea is you've forgotten the fact that you're divine. You need to be reminded that the divine resides in you and you can become a part of it. Whereas salvation for the Christian comes through repentance and admission of sin and going, I need someone to help me out. And I'll come back to that actually. But yeah, big difference, remembrance and repentance. But I wonder if there's not something real subversive about this idea of merging yourself into the oneness, because we, the Bible says, know you not that those of us who were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death. Mm. And so we died to ourselves. Those that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts. I think that's Galatians 5. Yep. So you've got this idea within in the gospel of I die to myself. I deny myself. I pick up my cross and then follow him. So there is in Christianity this dying. And I wonder if it finds its parallel in Eastern thought with this merging into the oneness, like letting yourself go. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. the Christian reality, though, is a bit different because you're letting yourself, you lose your life so that you could find it. Yes, right? exactly. But in that Eastern thought, that Eastern paradigm, there's the, or the oneism paradigm, there's this idea that you just, 
lose yourself just to lose yourself because that's the yeah. solution. Exactly. Just kind of self-hating. And it's very pessimistic. Like one of the main tenets of Buddhism is that all life is suffering. Uh, and that's why there's this desire to escape because it's seen as though there's some nice things to be enjoyed while you're here on earth. Uh, but also there's also the belief in reincarnation. So when you die, you, you keep having to come through and suffer over and over again. So they've actually compounded the amount of suffering in this worldview and said it's nonstop until you can reach a point where you become one with the divine. And I guess I'll touch on it now since we've already brushed up against it. A oneist worldview is always going to be salvation by works because in a oneist worldview, there's no one else to help you out. In a twoist worldview, God is separate from you and I, and so he could come and rescue us. We've got someone outside of ourselves who's able to reach his hand into history and actually help us out. Whereas in oneism, where is this God? He's nowhere to be found. He is, he's either in myself, but I think it's very depressing to see, to have yourself as the standard of God. If I'm the divine, like if I'm basically God, I'm kind of, I'd be depressed by that prospect. Like I would want something way better and more impressive and so much more powerful and so much more loving and gracious than myself to be the standard of God. And yet in a worldview where there is no God, I'm stuck with that. I have to carry the burden of my own salvation. So I have to do enough good works. I have to get enough good karma to just stop getting reincarnated, you know, uh, I have to give sacrifices. What's so interesting, like in ancient mythology, right, all of the gods in ancient mythology, I shouldn't say all, I'll say the large majority, because I haven't studied all of them, but the large majority come out of creation, like they're born out of the sea, they're born from a rock or from salt. They're actually a part of the created order, whereas God is, he creates and we're not told where he comes from. He's just eternal. He's always been around. And these ancient mythologies, what do you have to do? You have to give a sacrifice or an offering to get on the good side of these gods. So oneism is always dictated by this idea. There's no one to help you. you got to work out your own salvation by doing enough good works. Twoism is all about the fact there's no way you can achieve that. Thank goodness there's someone outside of yourself who can reach in and give you a hand. I've been reading First Corinthians, and it's such a good book. I would subtitle that book, Testimonies for the Church. From the Apostle Paul. Yeah. <laughs> because that's what he's doing. It's a lot of practical counsel, and he's addressing specific issues in the church. But before he does it, he, well, not before he does it, but as he gets into doing it, he talks in chapter one about how God chooses, basically he compares and contrasts man's wisdom and God's wisdom, basically saying that God's wisdom, his fool, God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom, mm. and that man's wisdom is basically useless. And, and then he says in chapter two, he says to the Corinthians, when I came and preached the gospel to you, and this has, this ties directly into what you were just saying. He says, when I came to preach the gospel to you, I intentionally spoke in simple terms. I did not speak with the enticing words of man's wisdom. And then he says, so that you're basically, he says, because I want, I spoke in the demonstration with the demonstration of the spirit, because I didn't want your faith to stand in the wisdom of men, but through the gospel, like on the pure message itself. And then he goes on to explain, this is so fascinating. I can't wait to be a pastor in a local church and I can just preach <laughs> on books of the Bible like this. But he, it's so fascinating. He says that who can understand the mind of God, but the spirit of God. And it requires, he said, the natural man 
can't receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. They're spiritually discerned. It takes the Holy Spirit revealing to your natural mind the things of God. That's the only way for you to understand the gospel. So he's, look, I'm preaching in super simple terms because I don't want you walking away going, man, that guy's so smart. He's so articulate. I'm going to believe what he told me because what he told me must be true because he's so talented and amazing. He says, I didn't want that. I spoke in simple terms so that your faith would rest purely upon the gospel message Mm. because the only way you can really comprehend the gospel anyways is the spirit reveals it to you. And I didn't want to get in the way of that. So my point that relates to what you're saying is, as you consider, as you're helping us consider these two basic worldviews, my mind thinks to myself, how in the world does the gospel sound to somebody from a one-ism worldview, right? Like, like, no, no, I'm just right with God. I'm as if I was perfect before the infinitely righteous judge of the universe, simply because I have placed my trust in his son. What? Yeah. Like to the mind that's (laughs) steeped in ritualism and pagan sacrifice and appeasement concepts. It's like, this idea is foolishness. Yes. It's absurdity that you can be made. You know what I mean? So I'm just thinking it requires the spirit. Like it, the spirit of God has to work to reveal this to people. Completely. Yeah. That's very much the case because oneism is everywhere. To my knowledge, I cannot think of any other tourist worldview bar Christianity. I'm yet to have come across it. And I've done a lot of research into this. I clearly haven't gone through all 40,000 different religious systems. But the general trend is everything in our world is oneist. I'll rattle off a few more examples before I get into how do we then witness and evangelize to these kinds of people in, in these worldviews. The two, two other big ones, pantheism, that's just a fancy word for God is in everything. So that's like in rocks and trees and you and me and animals, the divine's in everything. There's also panentheism, which is everything is in God. So it's basic. It's basically very similar. And the way that you'd hear this is there's a movement in progressive Christianity that really likes to teach panentheism and this idea of like Christ consciousness that you can reach the divine Christ in you. Because anyways, so that's where you might encounter that. It's just good to be aware of. And like atheism, atheism is a worldview with no regard for the supernatural. And yet it's still oneist because there's no God, there's no divine, there's nothing. In a sense, it might almost be the most pessimistic because at least the Hindu has hope of not reincarnating one day. But for the atheists, there's not really anything to strive for in terms of salvation. And I'll do one last one because there's probably a really smart listener out there going, what about Islam? Isn't like Islam the most twoist religion out there? And it, it's... It is strangely very twoist, and yet it's so twoist it becomes quite oneist. So in Islam, there's a doctrine called Tawheed, which is that nothing can be compared to Allah. He is completely separate and distinct. He's unlike anything else. But Allah is also very unreachable. He's very impersonal. He's about he's essentially as impersonal as the divine universe or what Zeus and Baal were to the ancient worshippers, you don't have a personal relationship with him. And so Muslims have recognized this difficulty. And there's two ways that it's been interpreted. One is a more progressive side known as the Sufis, and they just become oneists. They say, oh, Allah's in everything. So they just admit defeat and go straight to typical oneism. 
But then your more orthodox Islam, Muslims, so this is the majority, Sufis are the minority. The majority of Muslims would say, well, God is like personal relatable in that he creates creation. Now, the problem with that is Allah is dependent on his creation in order to be personable, whereas the God of Christianity, he's triune. So he could be the only thing in existence and he would still have that personal aspect to him, that love aspect, and it'd still be that that distinction, whereas Allah is dependent on creation in order to be kind of considered almost divine. That's how you'd answer kind of Islam. And of course, we could do a hundred examples on this, but I think that's a pretty good crash course, mm. kind of the main ones that we'll encounter in evangelism and how to approach those. How, yeah, just a bit of background info for you, give you a brief overview so you're well-equipped going into the future. No, that was really good, man. I'm interested now to hear about the uh, yeah practical implications. Like yeah, how, how that then translates into us being more effective in evangelism. Like I know, okay, there's two basic worldviews: oneism and twoism. Oneism, God is in everything, or the material world is all there really is ultimately. And if there is a God, God's in it. God's a part of it. Versus twoism, and that is that God is apart and beyond and separate from the material created universe. Yes. And just to add on that, not only is he separate, but he's also directly involved. Whereas a oneist divine is so, he's so intimate that he's completely transcendent, so to speak. He's so close and personal that it, he's nothing. It, he's completely vague and immaterial. So yeah, I think the best thing to do is you have to start with having conversations with people. And what I wouldn't do is just say stuff like karma's silly or, you know, not, not going like that. But why not? Why not? I say that all the time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I want to just, you know, I'm going to share with you a guilty pleasure. So I have a guilty pleasure and that is like to get into discussions with people I disagree with. Mm. And I just recently was on YouTube and these commenters were like, thank you, Hinduism, for bringing us all the great meditation techniques and all this stuff. And I was like, what? I was like, what? And then I just decided I'd troll a little bit and just said, hey, listen, man. Yeah, God bless the good that can come out of any religious faith. But Hinduism borrows from the concept of reincarnation and, and basically buttressed and supported the caste system of India, which yeah. has caused untold centuries like centuries of untold misery and harshness and cruelty. So for those of you guys who don't know, I'll just say this as a side note. Okay, within Hinduism is, the, is this thought. There's different schools of Hinduism, different sects within Hindu faith. But by and large, it is a common belief in Hinduism that the station in which you were born is the product of the accumulated choices, good or bad, of your past life. And therefore, the station you're born in is just and fair. Okay, so some people would, so the implication of that is, is if I go and help a person who's on the streets, starving, cold, miserable, destitute, lonely, diseased, if I alleviate that suffering, I'm actually working against karma that's playing itself out in the birth condition of that person. So this is contrary to Christianity, mm. where you alleviate the suffering, where God himself enters into the suffering and cares about the weak and the disenfranchised and the cast out. Well, Hinduism, you can like this or not like this, but it implies that to work against karma is bad because you're working against justice, which means you need to leave people in their sufferings because that's what they deserve. It's like, what? <laughs> and then you can smooth it over because like the Hindu apologist that I was debating this with not too long ago, they tried to smooth it over by saying, no, 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 no. 
all it implies is you've got to accept your lot. You know, just take with patience the difficulty you're suffering. And I'm like, yeah, we all agree with that. That's fine. Yeah. But you can't get around it, man. If I give a $10 million and a palace to a person who was born in that, how can you say that's just? And at the same time say that being born in that condition was what they deserved. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. in, it's inconsistent. So now you said that <laughs> you shouldn't say karma's done. And I felt, you well, know, yeah. I was triggered. <laughs> that's all right. I just, I just told some people karma was dumb. No, it's all right. Well, I, well you're right. You're right. Don't say, yeah. guys, that karma's dumb. <laughs> You've come across yet another example of the failing of what is it, which is in many ways it disincentivizes justice and charity and good things like that. Another example is in Christianity, God made the sacrifice for us. Jesus is the one and only sacrifice for us. You go back throughout history Look at the countless religious beliefs that literally sacrifice the lives of human beings in order to get salvation or fertility of crops, whatever the people needed from their gods. Like oneism is not just, we would say, philosophically wrong. In many instances, it's actually dangerous, both to people temporally here on earth and ultimately eternally for people. So yeah, a few things that I'll rattle off for how to navigate this space on top of just outright saying karma's dumb in the Matt Parahan book. I just ask some probing questions. Get them just to think about the implications of oneism. Oneism sounds really good to begin with, and the more you think about it, the worse it becomes. It sounds great to be your own God and be divine, but ask someone to really think about that. If you're really the standard for God, if you're the divine, isn't that, as I said, isn't that a little bit upsetting that there's nothing greater outside of yourself? There's no one to depend on. I talk about the fact that oneism creates an impersonal deity. Christians are unique that we sing songs to God. We pray to God because he's personal. And you won't quite find those same ideas in many other belief systems because who do you sing and pray to? You don't do it to yourself. So I just probe that a bit. Hey, yeah. In a oneist worldview, who do you have to rely on? Who can you go to for help? Who can you tell your sorrows to and your deep thoughts and feelings to in prayer? And, and another one is oneism, not always, but there's a big trend in oneism that the material realm is something to be escaped. It's something to get out of. So I just simply point to the material world and go, look at all the things that they're here to enjoy. Life's not perfect. But look at all the beautiful things in creation that we still have to enjoy, despite the fact we know it's a fallen world. Uh, and then I'd point to some of the benefits and blessings of twoism. You've got a personal, intimate God. You've got a God who's there to help you anytime. You've got a God who's given us creation as a blessing. You've got a, a God who's accomplished salvation for all of us. And I just, yeah, explain my own faith and go, here's why this worldview, this God who is distinct and separate from his creation and yet intimately involved is such a beautiful picture of reality. And I think not only is it the most beautiful worldview, but the one that corresponds with reality the best. It's the one uh, that makes the most sense to the world around us. And of course, from Christian worldview, we know corresponds with scripture as well. So I hope that gives just a, yeah, in our discussion of different types of worldviews and the kind of challenges and failings of certain ones and the benefits and blessings of twoism. And it kind of, yeah, gives you guys a starting framework at the very least 
to have these kinds of conversations. Amen. And uh, we're all human beings. We're made in the image of God. The human race is made in the was made in the image of God, and the image of God was restored in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is given to the world to convince us of sin, righteousness, the righteousness of God, and judgment. And being made in the image of God means you are rational because God is a rational being. Mm. Means you and your nature are driven and drawn to make sense of things. That's just the facts of reality. People are naturally logical creatures. And I think that one of the ways to show people the inconsistencies of a worldview or belief that's based on one of these two worldviews is to ask questions and to sincerely desire to understand. And so, and I really believe that if you're a sincere seeker, if you're looking for logic, if you're looking for everything in their belief system to make sense, and you're just asking questions so that you can make sense out of their worldview and their belief system, if it's an error, if it's wrong, it will not make sense to you because it can't make sense and it won't make sense to them because Mm. it can't make sense because it doesn't comport or match with reality. And I think this is something we we fail to realize. I may not have the magic question that's going to help someone to see their world review unravel so that they can come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. But I can sincerely ask questions as we interact at the moment. Like I've seen this happen many times in my experience where ask questions, 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 because you're sincerely trying to make sense out of what they believe. And oftentimes in answering the sincere questioner, a person will come to a point where they go, ah, uh, yeah, I don't know. Never thought of that. Or yeah. perhaps it doesn't make sense, does it? Oftentimes people don't think about what they think. And asking sincere questions makes people think about what they believe and think. Yes. Well, and the, it helps them to see the consistency or the inconsistency. Yeah. Like the age old questions is like, what do you believe? How did you come to that conclusion? Have you considered? Often people say a lot of slogans, but they don't really know why they think that. And so just asking them, oh, how'd you come to that conclusion? It's a very non-combative way to get someone to go, oh, I haven't thought that through. And you're not trying to catch them out. You're not trying to go, no. ha ha. You're no. just, if these are people you care for genuinely and you want them to think through and see the failings of a winner's worldview. That's it. Well, hey, listen, thanks so much, Christopher, for joining us. And I hate to cut us off, but yeah, we're out of time. And listen, everyone, we hope that today's been a blessing to you. You've picked up some little gems and some helps. And I have for sure. Thank you, Christopher, for coming on. And look, we'll see you guys next week. God bless. God bless.